Welcome, everybody, to the NFL's Grueling Truth Legends Show here on the Grueling Truth Radio Network. Remember, we are brought to you by Gridiron Mo, a new interactive football app where you get to call what the offense or defense should do during a live NFL game and see what all other fans have called also. We are also now our new sponsor, Replenishing Technologies. Make sure you check them out. You can actually find their link on our website, thegrillingtruth.net. Um, I'm your host, Mike Goodpastor, as always, for the Grueling Truth Legends Show, and today... We have somebody that may be more famous for what he did after football, and he did a lot when he played. Then he, uh, I mean, so we're going to go ahead and get to it. I know you know him from Shark Tank, also three-time former Pro Bowler with the Detroit Lions, St. Louis Cardinals. Help me welcome to the show Al Bubba Baker. Hey, Mike. Yeah, I didn't think about how to introduce you enough because there's so much stuff to talk about there. I got a little tongue-tied partway through. <laughs> 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 but I know you grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. You moved to Newark, New Jersey when you were nine. You want to tell us a little bit about what your life was like growing up? Yeah, you know, I um, I grew up in a family, and, I, and my family is going to be celebrating 60 years in the barbecue restaurant business, and the company is called Jenkins Quality Barbecue out of Jacksonville. And my uncle was the um, – you know, obviously, he was the CEO of the company, and, and uh, he was an entrepreneur 60 years ago. He had eight girls, so he was my mother's oldest brother, and obviously, I didn't have the luxury of deciding whether or not I was going to work in the business. I started stacking wood at the age of five, so I, I got a quick lesson in work ethic, you know, uh, I mean, I just... I didn't have the choice whether or not I was going to be there. It was a given, you know, and then my brothers were older and they had a choice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes you don't, but that's an easy way to make sure you got a job when you get out of high school. Yeah. Well, this started way before high school, but you know, by the time I got to the age of about 12, I knew what I was going to be doing with the rest of my life. I got to ride around with a guy. I mean, he was, special human being. I never heard him ever use a four-letter word. That's the kind of man my uncle was. Daddy Junior is what I called him. Well, I'm sure that that plays into the man you've become today. Well, I can't say that I've never used those words. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? There's not too many people that can say they've never used those words. And yeah, it's not, yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's not the use of the words, but what you mean when you're saying it, too, and what yeah. are you... Yeah. Absolutely. If you predetermine you're going to say something just for effect, that's a little bit different than, you know, something just blurting out. Well spoken, you know. And this, this was a man that I, I saw him... You know, when we talk about the word integrity, and I, I think I mentioned Michael had eight girls, and through the course of my lifetime... I saw four of those girls pass, two of them from multiple sclerosis. Uh, one of them had a brain tumor, and one of my cousins was actually murdered. And, 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 I, and I tell you that story because he would have his Bible in his lap, and it just seemed like to me that it, for a while there, and even, even today, I'm 60 years old, it seems like it. Didn't, he didn't waver. You, you know, you, you think of 
those kinds of things happen in your life that you would just actually just fall apart. Um, you know, he just, he, he had this peace about him in the midst of a storm. Now, I know what it was. It was his faith in God. But as a young man growing up, I just could not understand how this guy would, you know, weather the storm. And as I got older, by, by the time I got to be a, a professional athlete, I kind of realized it was his character. It was, it was what made him. And so right about the age of about 25, that was when I started wanting to be like my uncle. I, I wanted to be a guy that, you know, when things weren't going well, I was the same. Now, that never really happened, but it's still a goal of mine. It's a goal to have maybe my children's children to say, you know, Papa was a man that, um, you know, he was this or he was that. And next to my name, they would place, you know, integrity because, see, those are the kind of people that are truly heroes. And, 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 uh, and, and I just think that, you know, it's been a blessing to me to have had a man wasn't around, and so this was the guy that I got a chance to watch. And of course, my grandfather wasn't uh, my grandfather wasn't uh, a visible figure because he passed away before I was old enough to, you know, get a chance to get his influence. But uh, my daddy Jr. was he was that guy for me. So, and I think it played a a huge lesson in who I am today and how I've gone about how I treat people. Now, we talk about football, and I know the first time I ever talked to you, you said football is what I did. It's not what I am. But how did you become a football player? I mean, what drew you to the sport? Well, it's really funny you'd ask that because one of the things that my, my daddy Jr. and I did when, when I was very young, we would uh, go do work. I got the ride uh, with him, shotgun. And my reward, it was never money. Believe it or not, it was always a whopper. That's what he called it instead of a whopper. It was a whopper, it was fries, and it was a shake. And so by the time I was five, six, seven, Mike, I was five, seven, two hundred seventy-five pounds because of my uncle. <laughs> 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 I mean, he was a big guy. He was only about five foot eight, but he was big the other way, you know. So uh, he knew where to get the best shrimp, you know, uh, something in the south that was real popular. It was a bag of boiled peanuts. I mean, everything he knew, he, you know, he had uh, at, the, at the restaurant, they had these French fries that, that they were called curly fries, curly cues, and they would actually make them on a machine back then, and they poured barbecue sauce on them. And I don't think for about the first 10 years of my life I was ever spotted without one of these bags in hand. So, <laughs> you know, I, I quickly became the big kid um, in every sense of the word. I was, you know, I was, I was bigger, taller than most kids. I was certainly heavier than most kids. But I got blessed with something. I think I got it from my older brothers um, being athletes. I was extremely agile. And so right about my, um, uh, about the eighth grade, um, I shot up. And then I was 6'3", like 290 pounds. 
And so, you know, I never played JV. I just kind of went right up to varsity, and the, and the whole level of um, competition was was greater. It was, it was always strong. You know, being bigger didn't necessarily make me more mature. I was kind of a big baby, if you will. In fact, yeah, I was a better baseball player, and I was a um, – my second sport was basketball, and then came football because I just wasn't a very, I don't know, you know, tough kid. I wasn't very mentally tough. And uh, so so I became a football player accidentally. Um, and when I say that, it had to do with a challenge that, uh, you know, I was the baby in my family. And uh, football really wasn't that sport for me at that time. Um, and like I said, I, I didn't get it that it was really about man on man, and it was about breaking that other person's will. I mean, you need you really you needed to be not only physically but emotionally and mentally stronger than your opponent. So here yeah. I come along, and I was I, you know Bill Cosby's show, Fat Albert. Yeah. My middle name was Albert. I'm this fat kid, so I hate Bill Cosby's cartoon. <laughs> I mean, you know, the name Bubba wasn't always Bubba with respect, Bubba Baker. It was Bubba, that kind of Bubba, like that kid. <laughs> yeah, not a good Bubba. Well, my mother didn't help it at all either because being in New Jersey at that time growing up, when it was cold, she put me in corduroys. So here I'd come walking down the street and you'd hear this. <laughs> and then be my thighs rubbing together. And, I mean, I would rub holes in my pants. And my mother would really help me out. Of course, she put patches in my pants. So I had a really nice sound going on. I mean, you know, I, I might have I been one of the first guys to start that scratching and rap music, but, I, it, but it came from my thighs instead of a <laughs> – instead of a uh, – a record player, but, you know, I, I tell this story about myself because I really am uh, the story of a late bloomer, and I, and I think my story is so important because there's so many people that put their kids into football at the age of five, six, and seven, and, you know, and I see a lot of them when they come into the restaurant, hey, talk to my kid, you know, and I look at the kid, yeah. and, you know, I look in his eyes, and I'm thinking, you know, this is this is a baby. You know, it's really not time to try to find out if he's mentally tough. He's he's still developing as to whether or not. He's yeah, but you know what, Bubba? The one thing I've found is this: is most of these people that do this with their kids were the ones that were scared to death when they were five or six and didn't play, or were intimidated and got beat up and picked on when they played. So they're trying to live through their kids. You know what? You know, they, there's this. Well, there's a a book about it's called living vicariously through my son. And, and, and it's, and it's by the same guy who wrote the book, ironically diary of a tyrant. And that's what most of the children feel like their parents are when their parents force them to play football. And, and, and you know, Mike, I tell you, uh, when we first met, it was a wonderful meeting of, of, you know, I love meeting guys like yourself with an experience of depth and we share with people, you know, that we weren't always who we are, or, or in my case, I wasn't Al Baker, the blue-chip football player. In fact, my high school football coach had some choice words 
when I was a you know, sophomore and he came to my home because I was a cook and I loved cooking and he questioned my manhood and needless to say what word he called me. The you know, he called me the F word uh, and not being mature, I was not interested in girls. But not because there was anything wrong with my choice of sexual preference. Well, interesting girls. I was only interested in dribbling a basketball, playing football, or, or being a pitcher in baseball. And so being a kid, again, everybody expected me to be like a, you know, 14, 15-year-old when I was 12 or 13 or, or even more because of the size of my body. And I really had a, a really interesting experience from this guy who was my high school coach because he actually came to my house. He sat down with my mother and my older brothers and, you know, and they weren't happy. They were like, oh, you know, you know, you blah, 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 blah. And, and it kind of, it, it stuck in there and I got to use it as fuel in my fire later, you know, the high school coach that called me out of my name. I always thought of him when I got tired I always thought of him when I, when I, when when the odds were against me, and even when I got out to the point to where I was on national TV in college or Monday Night Football, his his name was always in the back of my mind, and to me, that is the true quality of a football player. You know, the bully that picked on me, those people drove me. The people that said I couldn't do it. Uh, so, so you and I have that in common. You know, we talked about your life. Through yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'm, I'm doing this now, and we're on iHeartRadio and talking to a bunch of people. But when I was in school, I was the kind of kid that, you know, in high school, if we did a book report, I'd take the C. I'd get an A on the written part and refuse to get up and talk in front of people because I was nervous. Exactly. Exactly. And me, I was a fat kid. I was scared to ask girls to dance because the go in front of everybody else and I'd be embarrassed. So I, I didn't get, you know what I'm saying? I, I wasn't the, yeah. the, the guy that at 14, 15 years old, I wasn't, you know, calling girls and listening to my yeah, You weren't confident enough in yourself to exactly. make that move. Yeah. A- absolutely. You could say I was scared of girls. But you want to know something? I think that in the long run, I think guys or girls that are like that end up better off in the end because you have more time to work on yourself before you have to try to find somebody. And you may know yourself a little bit better, and it may make it easier to find that right person. You know what, Mike? I I agree with you 100%. Because I've been married to the same woman for 34 years, and if God is willing I will be married to her for another 30-plus years. I mean, yeah, because I've been married for 21. Yeah, she's, well, see, I've been married. I've been in love twice in my life, once with my mother and once with my wife, Sabrina, who is currently my wife and my partner in business. And that's a little tougher than the married part, working with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be. But, all right, so, I mean, when did you bloom? I mean, you ended up, you went to Colorado State to play football. Um, yeah. What led to your decision no, to go to Colorado, Colorado State? I went to play basketball. Remember oh, you went to play basketball. All right. Yeah, that's right. I okay. Went, I, I went to play basketball, and we had an olden day coach named Jim Williams. And uh, I called myself 
circumventing his rule. I had a basketball scholarship. My high school coach, Floyd Peters, was an alumni. I mean, Floyd Kerr was an alumni. Floyd Peters was the man. And that's another down-the-line story about the guy who made me a football player. Floyd Peters was a defensive line coach. But Floyd Kerr was a basketball coach. We won the state. And he got rewarded with a job at Colorado State after my junior year. So uh, my senior year, it was one of the schools that I visited. And uh, they were, um, you know, a moderate school in what was called the Western Athletic Conference there with uh, New Mexico and Texas El Paso and Air Force and Utah, Utah State, Arizona, Arizona State. So they very rarely won the division in the Western Athletic Conference because of Arizona State and Arizona and, of course, uh, University of New Mexico, where Mike Cooper was from, that was a great basketball, college basketball team. So um, when I when I got to Colorado State, they used to have to run from what was called the Moby Gym up to the mountains and back. And so my freshman year, the only running shoes we had back then were Chuck Taylor Converse. You know, here I am a little bit on the uh, heavy side. I'm 260 now. I'm six foot six, 260. And uh, I'm playing what we called back then a power forward. We didn't have one, two, three, four, and five. We didn't refer to it as that. Yeah. You were guard or forward or you were the center. And uh, so we took off. And, Mike, I'm not kidding you, the other kids, them 180-pound them, them kids that were freshmen, um, they were showered and getting in the cars and on their way home by the time I was on my way back. I'm not kidding you. And when I got back, I said to myself, you know, when these blisters, <laughs> when, these, when these blisters on my feet heal, I will never, ever do that again. And so I went in to see Coach Williams, who at the time was in his early 60s, and I said, Coach, you know how you said all the basketball players would have to play on a uh, fall sport? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm going to go out for football. And he said, no, you won't. Nobody's ever gone out of a ball and fight for me. And I said, Coach, but you said it was a fall sport. And I said, I, I'm really not into the cross country. I said, but football is a fall sport. So, you know, obviously uh, he had to honor his word. Uh, he was a man of honor. He was a Mormon. He was from Utah. So he kind of, you know, he, he couldn't go against his own word. He was just, he was that kind of guy. He said he was going to do something. He did it, and he was one of those people I learned that from. So I went out for football, and I was proud of myself, like that I was like the seventh tackle uh, on JV. I actually had a they had a name for us. We were called scout teamers. We 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 there were like three people that had the same number. I had number ninety eight. So my 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 interest was is that I don't have to get out there and play. I don't have to get out there and run cross-country run, you know, with the cross-country team, I could play football, run for 30 seconds, rest for 40, run for 30 seconds, and rest for 40. And, and so that's kind of how that started. And so when I, how I turned the corner was um, in my sophomore season, we went down to play a school that you, everybody knows, it was called the Arkansas Razorbacks. Yeah, and they had an all-pro defensive. I mean, uh, well, he went to pros. He was a first-round draft choice, but he hurt 
every single tackle that was in front of me. I'm, I'm not kidding you. He power rushed them right over the pile, and he would bend them over backwards, including two of the guys that played before me. Both went in the first round the same year, Al, Big Al Simpson and Mark Mullaney, and they were, you know, highly talented. And, and this guy basically almost killed them. And then there was another backup who worked for ESPN now. His name is Steve Cyphers. And then we had yeah. another kid who was the strongest kid on the team. He went out there, and he basically walked off with something first up on the back of his head and said, I quit. That was the nature of this guy's football prowess. So I'll never forget it. The head coach was Sarka Sarsalanian, and he also worked with the offensive line. And, you know, trainer Fred Oglesby ran down the sideline, and he said, Baker. I was had my back turned to the field. I mean, the score was 77 to 3 at this point. But <laughs> Baker. Baker, and I looked around and I go, what? He said, get in there. And I was like, get in where? You know, what are you talking about? He said, get your helmet. I didn't even know where my helmet was. <laughs> <laughs> That's how far I was buried in, in the, you know, in the bench. And, yeah. and I made the travel down there, and it was kind of one of those things. And, uh, and the truth of the matter is, Mike, was – I had seen what he was doing to these seniors, and I was a sophomore. I was so scared that I grabbed him, and I threw him down, and I just started to pound on him. And uh, this went on, and then finally I reversed it. I grabbed him and ran him over a pile. His play was going away, and I just ran him over a pile, and he bent over, and I jumped on top of him. And, you know, I just – I was scared to death. But I I was – the part of Newark kicked in on me. I was so scared that I was willing to fight back. You know, I wasn't going to let this guy do to me what he had done. I'd seen him do it to three other people. He, I mean, he literally just overwhelmed them. And uh, so uh, that following week, even though we had got killed on national TV, and it was almost it was laughable as a matter of fact. We were you know, they made bumper stickers for Colorado State that said number one upside down and the whole town had them, you know. Um but I'll never forget Charlie Army, who was on defense, um, said to me in the meeting room and again I was in the back of the room with all the freshmen and I could hardly see the screen and he said, you know, Baker, stand up and I stood up and he said Look at this guy on film, and he said, that's what we want, you know. And I'm holding the guy the whole time, tackling him. I'm off as a tackle, by the way, and I'm scared to death. <laughs> but what he, was, what he was acknowledging was that he thought it looked like from where I was sitting, like, oh, man, he's, you know, kicking this guy's butt. This All-American. And, and the truth of it is, like, I was scared to death. I was like a squirrel in the corner. You know, of, of of what I, you know, what might have happened to me, uh, and what I had seen him doing to some people who, who I fully acknowledge that were better athletes, better football players, definitely tougher than me. It was just that I was so scared, and I I blocked out, uh, you know, that big old band that was behind us, and there was a whole quarter left. But the funny thing that happened was towards the end of that game. I saw something in his eyes 
that I realized that he he kind of thought to himself that this this kid ain't scared of me. And of course, yeah. I was big. You know, I, I wasn't. I was I was as big as those seniors. You know, at the time, I'm six six. You know, three hundred pounds at the time. It was close to three hundred pounds. Soft. You know, again, I'm still fat, Albert. Still the same mentality. But after that acknowledgement in front of about 120 guys, you know, both the, the senior football team and the scout team and, the, you know, the, the guys that travel in the sophomores, which, which I was one of, and I had never been in a college football game, not, not one, certainly not one on TV, in a crowd where, you know, it's probably 90,000 people at the University of Arkansas and a big giant band right behind the visiting team. And something inside of me clicked. And it clicked because the guys that were my um, comrades were, you know, that following day in practice, they were like, where to go, Baker, where to go, Baker. And from that point on, I played the game to hear that. I, I wanted to be a part of that camaraderie. And so here I am, a sophomore, with about four or five games to go, and the seniors are actually talking to me. And, and you know that whole stick, you know. There was yeah. no crime for uh, – hazing and all that. I had to swim in the duck pond. I'd had worn a beanie hat. I'd, you know, I'd done everything you could imagine. I'd been taped to the goalpost. But now all of a sudden I was one of the guys who was being respected and people were saying things like, you know, hey, if you get in the weight room, you know, you're going to be something. And, and uh, that kind of, that was the first time I ever acknowledged, that was the first time I ever realized what it was that back in Weekwake High School that Bernie Adams wanted for me. He wanted to see that nasty side of me, which I didn't have. And even in that game against Arkansas, that wasn't what my my, my motive was. My motive was fear. But yeah, but don't you think myself. don't you think anytime somebody plays a combat sport whether it's football, boxing, you gotta be a little bit scared. And the people that are really good are the ones that can take that fear and make it work for them. You know, I found that out later. Um, you're absolutely right. And, and, and you know, if you get to the point, if you're standing there, whether it's high school, college, or professional, and you don't have something inside of you that makes your skin crawl when that person sings the national anthem, if you don't get butterflies, you probably should go up and stand because something's not right with you. And, you know, I yeah, and usually when that time. happens is when guys retire, too. Yeah, and that was when I retired. It, it, it really was. It, it, you know, towards the end of my career, the guy so we'll address that later, how I knew it was time to get out. But um, when you ask how did, how did you start, and, and so, you know, Colorado State was coming into its own as a football team and trying to develop. And in that same year, that same year that I think we won two games, the quarterback combination of Mark Driscoll and a guy named Willie Miller, who was a Vietnam veteran, they were the number one passing team in the United States and in and, and college football. And, and you know the, the reason, because we were always behind. And, yeah. uh, you could always count on uh, Mark Driscoll throwing the ball up in the air, Willie Miller going down and making a spectacular catch. But we were usually 20, 21 points behind, and so coverage was different. But, you know, we had the passing yardage, and they had that that kind of thing going into the next season, and we got a chance to see that highlight film of what was coming back when I was going to be a junior. And uh, that spring, a guy by the name of John Wooten from the Cleveland Browns 
who had played for the Dallas Cowboys and the Browns was a scout. And I will never forget him coming into the training room and saying to me, hey, kid, if you commit yourself, he, he was basically trying to get me to quit basketball, which didn't happen and it wasn't going to happen. And he said, if you, get yourself, if you get yourself into the weight room, you know, I could be coming back here to talk to you next year this time. And it stuck with me because he took the time to, you know, to, to tell me, you know, you know, he said, you know, you've got the frame and, and so on and so forth. And so I did that, you know, and I did it in between basketball practice and studying. And uh, so I kind of, I leaned out. And so instead of being 300 pounds, I came back my junior year. I was 260 pounds, and, and they had a couple of guys that were bigger and stronger than me. And so as a result, I didn't realize it at the time. I was very disappointed. I got moved to defense, to a defensive end on the right side. And uh, that very same guy that promised me he was responsible, his name was John Wooden. And John said to Charlie Army, he said, hey, put Baker over there. And he said, let, let, me, let me see you get around. And the guy, again, that was Steve Cypher. He was our best offensive tackle, playing left tackle. And I kind of threw a basketball move, dipped my shoulder, went right around. And then I went around and then went around. And, then, and I came back, and I kind of had this, I'd imagine, had this doofus look on my face like, got anything else? And he said, do that again. And so that was when we found out that I had something that I didn't even realize I had. And I had that basketball drop step or just fly off the ball up the field, but I could always make that offensive tackle pause for a moment and try to figure out, you know. And so I Yeah, had that's the hit. one thing I noticed. I watched a little bit of film because I got a ton of even Lions stuff from the late 70s. I had a VCR, used tape, everything. But I would watch you actually kind of pull up stutter step and make a move around a guy and watch the guy dive and miss you in the NFL even. That, that was, you know, that was my whole philosophy, kind of like a fighter. I would go inside. I would go outside. I would set a guy up. And, and the whole time, like, all I wanted him to do was split his leg and get a wide base so I could power rush him and run right over him. Yeah, because if they got a wide base, there's no way they can stop you. And then, there was, you know, just like judo, there was no way. And then after we started to do things like my the guy that I played right next to in the NFL named Doug English, we learned to do games. And so, you know, Doug would go in between the guard and tackle. I'd go around him inside. And so with having all that basketball training, bad steps was something that came really natural to me. So when I was going down inside, I'd take a, a, a giant step ahead like I was going straight up the field. That guy would open up. He'd look for me. Doug would come between him. I'd go around him untouched. So that I had that element, and the truth is, is a lot of what I did was done with smoke and mirrors because I never ran, even at 260, the fastest 40 I ever ran was a five flat. But I could, but I could get off the ball quickly. You know, I had, I had a quick twitch. And, again, yeah, you had a great burst. basketball. I had a great yeah. burst. And you had really and good hands. But you know what, Michael? The quarterbacks were standing in the pocket then. They, they weren't like Cam Newton and – you know, the guys that you see now, they, they get out of there, the, these quarterbacks that are mobile. I mean, most of the quarterbacks back then, you, you think about it. The only one guy that 
never would be in the same spot with Fran talking to. And yeah. Outside of him, everybody else was what we refer to as pocket passers. You know, you, as a matter of fact, you were criticized if you didn't stand in the pocket and take a hit. They, you know, they had other names for you if you were quarterback. So that was kind of how I got to that, that football level. And I always knew that I was different because – I'd watch other linemen, and I'd go, I wonder how long he's going to stand there and run smack down into that tackle who's the size of a refrigerator, not make him move his feet, and play right into his strength. Because that was what he, what I wanted as an offensive I wanted to run right into me. You see this lady? Oh. Uh, I, I wanted, I wanted um, that guy to, you know, make my job easy for me. So as a player – I knew I could line up wide, make him open up, go underneath him, go around him, because the quarterback's back was to me. <laughs> yeah, he's going to stay there. And the thing is, with he, you, with the great burst, from what I watched you, especially like 78, 79, you'd basically just run the hoop on him. you come out the other end and get him. And the thing I really noticed was after like 79 or 80, it looked like you really developed a rip move. That was That was my go-to move. And, again, going back to that, fighter's example, I would rip that guy, rip that guy, rip that guy, and if that guy overplayed the rip, I'd hump him, I'd slam him past me and go underneath. And it was just like jab, 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 and then right cross, you know. I was setting him up. But the thing that I did and the the, the thing that, that I was blessed with, I had a coach named Floyd Peters, and Floyd – knew that I came to the NFL really, really ticked off because I was the – I was told that I was going to be a first-round draft choice. I came out, and it was called like the year – in 1983, it was called the year of the quarterback. I came out the year of the defensive lineman in 1978 behind Ross Browner, Arch Still, and a guy even went before me who was a tight end who played for Notre Dame. His name was Ken McAfee. He got switched over to a defensive end. I mean, they were taking guys that were seriously. I'm not kidding. Stevie Wonder went before me in the draft. I was the first pick <laughs> in the second round, and and it 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 made me again going back to Coach Adams. It gave me something to remember when when my mind would tell my body that I was tired, especially playing in that Silver Dome, and uh, and so so it gave me again fuel in my tank to fire, to burn inside of me, to push me uh, a lot further. And, and let's go back. As a basketball player, I knew that I had a higher and a, and a superior level of conditioning because in the offseason, I played basketball. Most football players, they were locked up in the weight room because yeah. that's what they counted on. They counted on going like, you know, a 12, 15-second play getting a 40-second rest. Me, I could run, you know, six, seven, eight miles, and, and I knew I wasn't going to die from it. But the average football player back then, you know, if you asked him to run a mile, he thought he was going to die like the first day of training camp. I mean, I, I would hear guys going, hey, coach, I think my heart's going to burst. You know, I mean, I, I always believed that the most important thing was was that I was superiorly conditioned as a pass rusher, meaning I wasn't going to get tired. I was just going to keep coming and coming and coming. And like Floyd taught me, he would say, when they come, 
they come in bunches. And so my career was filled with games where I might go the whole game, the whole first two-thirds of the game, we get down to the point to where it was a two-minute drill. I'd press that guy into a mistake, and then boom, 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 I get two, three, back-to-back. And then, of course, we had the chop block. They'd send it back over my side of the tight end and, and uh, you know, and do everything they could do to make sure that I didn't get to their quarterback. But it was always a strategy of mine to press that person into making a mistake. You know, it was, it was a decided um, – it wasn't by accident. It was something that to watch and film – I would know, you know, especially if a guy, if a guy couldn't handle the rip, Mike, I would rip him every single time until he overplayed it. Then I'd go yeah. to me, and what I see a lot of today, I see it every game I watch. I'll see a guy beat a guy with an arm over, and then he'll come back and do something fancy, and I'm thinking, why didn't you just beat him with that arm over again and beat him over his head. Yeah, as a defensive lineman, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but when I coach my defensive lineman, you need two moves. If you get two moves, you're fine. Well, see, in the NFL, it takes two good moves to yeah. beat a good pro. You're not going to beat a pro with just a rip. And that's what I said to you. I had that little head wobble, you know, like a basketball player. I had that little head thing. And then I had where they were looking for a move, and boom, I just fly right off the ball put that rip down, dip my shoulder, and turn that corner. But they never knew when I was going to do that. You know, they never knew it. And then once they started to play that rip, once they started guessing, that's when I just lined up and just ran right over them because I knew they had a wide base. The same way you keep somebody from going around you, you open your base. Once they open their base, man, I'd take my helmet, I'd stick it right in their chin, run right over. And so, you know, Guys would see this on film, and the thing that it would produce is it would produce them guessing what was next. <laughs> and that's when I just keep ripping and ripping and ripping and ripping. And so I always felt like this. As long as that guy, as long as I had him guessing, then he was on the defensive. He was, he was basically backing up trying to figure out what I was going to do. And uh, that was what I played, you know, I, I can tell you that secret now after 13 seasons, but I went into every game thinking that, of course, studying um, and, and trying to find out what that guy's weak spot was. And, and, uh, and I, I had one of the great experiences that I learned early on in professional football, and that was the game of football can be enjoyed by rough girls, but it's hardly a game for a delicate boy. And if I spotted on film that you broke down or that you your head dropped when you got beat or you had any of those mannerisms, <laughs> it was going to be a long day for you. Yeah, I mean, body language is a huge yeah. thing. Actually, I mean, I think that goes for almost anything you do in life. I mean, Absolutely. if you bad body language, you give off bad vibes, and, you know, you kind of turn people off right away there. Hey, here's the way so, I always say it. Attitude is everything, and and I would go into it looking at a guy. You know, I'd watch, I'd get filmed. We'd land on a Sunday night, and I had friends in the film room. And of course, back then, you had to wait on it because it was 16 millimeter. <laughs> we didn't even have VCR at that time. And it was yeah. 16 millimeter, and it took forever. And, of course, it would put you to sleep because it ticked it. 
had to wind it up, you know. But but the guy that made me, Floyd Peters, he, he taught me uh, how, to, how to become a pro. And one of the things he did to me was when I got to Detroit way before my first rookie camp, uh, he gave me a set of reels of Cedric Hardman, Jack Youngblood, uh, Fred Dreyer, uh, uh, Coy Bacon, Gino Marchelli, uh, and probably one of the one of my all-time favorite guys uh, that a lot of people didn't know this um, about him was Doug Atkins. You remember Big yeah, Doug? The old bear. Yeah, the Bears. Yeah. And Doug, what I got from Doug was Doug would just undress you. He would, you know, he was just a big old farm boy from Arkansas. And Doug, oh, he was bigger Doug, than everybody else back in. Yeah, he was six foot eight. Remember now, I'm taller than everybody now. Now I'm six foot seven and a half. Yeah. And Doug, Doug Atkins had them farm boy hands. In fact, while everybody else wore arm pads and protection on the back of their hand, he had bare hands. And, boy, when he got a hold of an offensive lineman, he treated him like a rag doll. In fact, that was his shortcoming. He'd stand there and beat up on the lineman. You know, the whole first half of the game, uh, he would beat up on him. Yeah, and to him, it was like a body punches. He would just throw him around and throw him over the pile and run him over the quarterback. And, and then later in the game, he'd break that guy's will. And he had such powerful hands. He was a farm boy. He legitimately was was from a farm, and he was meaner than a rattlesnake. And, uh, of course, there was the mad stalk, Ted Hendricks, but of all those people, uh, I would have to say to you that, you know, watching Cedric Hardman, who was a speedster and a strong safety, really, at a historically black college, what he had was he would lower his inside shoulder and just basically – allow that guy to slide off of his back. So I incorporated a lot of that with my length. And and I told you this story about how old Jeter and I, Gary Jeter and I used to tease each other. I'd watch him from USC because he had a really great spin move. And I only used a spin move when I was even to the quarterback. You know, if yeah. I was nine yards deep and the quarterback was nine yards deep, I'd spin around and dive on the back of his leg, which back then was legal. So, So Floyd taught me that it wasn't that, that that athletic ability that would separate you. It was the six-inch difference that was between your two ears and how you prepared as a professional. And so I, I actually, being an ADHD hyper-type guy, uh, I enjoyed the calmness that came with being in a room that was dark by myself staring at this film looking for just one weakness on my opponent uh, that that would allow me to make a play. Out of 60 plays, you know, I make a play, and I make a play 16 times, that's 16 sacks, you know, and it just so happens I wound up with 23 as a rookie, and it had a lot to do with that they didn't know who I was it had a lot to do with I was the 13th line pick that nobody paid any attention to me. They paid attention to Art Still and all these guys that went before me, but I kind of snuck in on them, and I was little known, and by the time they figured out who I was by Thanksgiving, it was too late because I was a believer. 
I was so see, and the thing that's sad is I got a chance to talk to Coy Bacon before he passed away, probably about 2005, 2006. And as he said, the fact that they didn't keep those sack stats, I mean, you yeah. get guys that are left out of the Hall of Fame like yourself who, if those sack stats were there, it'd be hard to ignore you. Well, I, I, I also know this as a as a kind of a pass rush historian, and, and you know my favorite player was always Deacon Jones and the and the you know the fearsome foursome, and then of course the Purple People leaders. Here's the here's the downside, and the reason I never um, toot my own horn. If you were to go back and look at the Gino Marchettis and the Coy Bacon's, you know, I think you find out that some of them guys had 30-plus tackles for loss is what they refer to them then. And that would put, like, they said I was in the top ten, you know, Sports Illustrated. Well, if I make them go back and look at sacks and they start digging up those guys from before me, like Coy Bacon, I think you'd find me somewhere, you know, in the bottom 200. You know, that, that that's just my own personal belief because – I've got some old film, and I mean, you know, the guys like Doug Atkins, I mean, they get four or five tackles for loss on the quarterback. Just, you know, the quarterback was set three yards. They'd pick that man up and carry him back then on the quarterback. I mean, they were just – it was a tougher game then, and – it was a different breed of game, just like the game. Yeah, I but also, like, Al, you got to remember, it, it was a tougher game when you played than it is now, and these guys get in the and, Hall of Fame with exactly. their big inflated stats. So, And that's why you don't want – I personally would not want to go back and start that, open that can of worms because, like I said, a lot of those guys were extremely skillful. And uh, you take a guy like Bubba Smith, I mean – he was a man amongst boys, you know. Yeah. Um, you, you know what I mean? You, you you start to think about that kind of stuff. You start putting together guys that played for Dallas and guys that played for Washington and guys that played for the Rams. Uh, Otis Sistrunk, you know, I mean, this guy, he was – nobody was 6'6", 260 then. I mean, he was something else, man. And so, you know, when you watch these guys on film back then, and you see the receivers released down the field, quarterback drop back, boom, they're on top of them. You know, there's really no way to count that. And so I just figured that, you know, I'm supposed that my total amount is like 132.5, and sometimes I've seen it as high as 142. You know, Elias Brothers kept track of that stuff. So I'm happy that when I run into a guy that I played across from, Mike, um, and say I'm with my son or my wife, when they look at my wife or son or daughter and say, hey, your dad was a player, that's enough Hall of Fame for me. Yeah. Well, it's good enough for me, too, but I still – there's a few guys that aren't in there. It really bothers me. But especially Robert Brazil. I still think Robert Brazil should be there, and the fact that he doesn't even get sniffed to get in really annoys me. But – yeah. That and I really like Robert well, as a person. So it comes, with, it comes with the territory. <laughs> hey, it comes with the territory. And like I said, um, you know, football was my job, but barbecue was my passion. So, so let's was, get to that right now. I mean, because I know that you only got a certain amount of time, and I definitely want to hear about this. Like I said, I didn't know a lot about it until you, until you agreed to be on the show, and I did a little research. 
But tell us when you retired from football. I know you had a story you wanted to tell about why you retired, and maybe just kind of go from there, how you got back into the barbecue business, or did you never get out? I never got out. Barbecue always ran through my veins. I told you I grew up in it. But, you know, I learned something in college, and it carried all the way through, and that was I was that guy that I got so wound up once I became a starter I found that the day of the game, now I don't recommend this for any smart athlete, whatever they do, if they hear this, do not subscribe to this, but I couldn't eat the day of the game. It just wouldn't stay down. You know, I I would get so jittery and so jacked up that anything that I took down that was solid came up. And, And, I mean, it would literally come up in my chest. I'd have indigestion, heartburn, and then, Right after the national anthem, there I went and found me a, you know, by the time it was over, they gave me one of those bags like on the airplane. I just couldn't hold the food down. Yeah. Um, so as a result, I just stopped eating day of the game, you know, because we would get into a routine in the NFL, especially in Detroit. You know, you play at 1 o'clock, you get over, get taped at 7. By that time, I'd start having a couple cups of coffee, getting even more jacked up. Um, you'd be out on the field before you knew it, warming up, and then here you are, boom, it's kickoff. So I couldn't eat, and then when the game was over, it was hard to come down. So it was kind of like a fast, if you will. It was like a, a an emotional and a physical fast. And so as the years went by, I became that person that I was known as that, you know, and they, they, you know, they wouldn't even check my name anymore at breakfast because they knew I couldn't eat. And yeah. So here comes a new challenge for me the first time I play a Monday night game as a, as a player. I can't eat because I'm going to get sick. So what we, what we learned to do was they would actually give me before the game, uh, like intravenously they would give me like, you know, electrolytes because yeah. I would get really, really sick. The first time I played a Monday night game, not a Monday night game, a night game was in Tampa. Well, it was 97 degrees, hadn't eaten all day, and so we found out something in my – and literally, I cramped up. So we, we found things that we would do, and I could drink, like, the thing that you gave little babies, electrolytes, and, and uh, get, I would get intravenous needles in my arm, you know, trying to keep me from having a sunstroke or, you know, getting sick like I used to yeah. get. I mean, I'd be sick coming back from a, a late game. Um so what, what happened was, towards the end of my career, it was my 13th season, and I was going in the um, – we were going to have a bye. We were going to play Monday uh, – uh, going to play the Buffalo Bills, and I ate. I mean, it was a night game. And I found myself go through the line, and I grabbed a, you know, steak, and I grabbed some – how uh, they had some clear spaghetti and the clear sauce. Not, I mean, not clear sauce, but red sauce. And I sat down, and albeit it was just a little bit, and I went out, and we got it handed to us. And they were played in front of this kid named Howard House Ballard. And yeah. he kind of reminded me that if my career was over, he kicked the crap out <laughs> of me. And, and, and I knew that that was it because, I had to eat. You know, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to get something to eat. And just mentally, I knew that I was no longer in a place. And I actually went in and told the Browns and shared that with them and said, hey, you know what? 
you know, when I come back from this bye, we need to start looking at, uh, and, and of course I got hurt. That was the other thing. I, I had already had severe nerves and I'd already had uh, torn rotators. And I was just tired of wearing shoulder harnesses, taking shots, doing what we did back then to, to get ready. We did whatever we could to get ready to play. I'd had, a, I mean, a, that I knew of five or six concussions um, and probably a half a dozen to a dozen more that, you know, were not diagnosed, you know. Uh, so I knew that it was time to get out of that game. And when I got out of that game, I'd already known what I was going to do. And, of course, it was the barbecue business. And so it was in my blood. And uh, t- going back to when we talked about me as a, pass rusher and being a little different, I always knew that I did not want to just be in the barbecue business. I wanted to be an innovator of the barbecue business. And and that's kind of how we get to the Bubba's Q boneless baby back where it's, it's patented. And we're the only people in the world that do it. And when did you come up with that, the patent on that? Uh, well, the patent was – purchased by me and my daughter, Brittany, in like 2007, 2008. But the idea was born 35 years ago when I met my wife, who, if you think about this now, she was from Detroit. There was no cook channels. The only person on TV back then was either Justin Wilson, uh, the uh, Cajun cook. I don't even think Martha Stewart was even heard of at that point, but uh, Judith Mill, there was a whole bunch of old British cooks that were on, you know, cooked stews and all that, but nothing like what we know now to be the foodies. They they weren't heard of yet. Yeah, now you got 20 food networks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you got people travel all over the world. And, uh, but, but my wife was from Detroit and, her, me coming from a barbecue family, and then I meet her family, and the only time they had barbecue was like Memorial Day, Fourth of July, and then Labor Day. And so my wife, as a result, uh, when I introduced her to my family, she waited until she got with all of my relatives down in Jacksonville, and she waited to then to announce, "Oh, I don't eat ribs because they're too messy." <laughs> So they still don't like her to the day, to this day. They have never forgiven. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you. And so that, that right away, that started me to think. Well, what, what am I gonna? How am I gonna get my wife to enjoy this tender, moist, juicy meat that is between these bones? Uh, you know, in a rib, and and she just would not eat. I mean, you could. It was like trying to pull her teeth. She just wouldn't eat it. She was. She certainly wasn't gonna pick it up with her hands. She didn't think it was ladylike. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of was the birth of the idea. And, you know, and after ruining over $100,000 worth of ribs, trying to get the bones out, my daughter came along, and she um, put some of that new enthusiasm into it, and she helped me um, solve the, the, the issue. And then we couldn't serve it in the restaurant because you cannot serve anything and then go get a patent. So we had to keep it a secret for about a year while we uh, patent searched. And, and then, of course, that became a patent pending, and we could obviously go ahead and serve the item. And 
took us about a year because most of the people that came in would say, well, what do I want with a rib with the bones removed? And, uh, again, going back to that coach that came to my house, going back to college, the motivation, going back to the pros, that motivated me that people would say, why would I want a rib with the bones removed? And so today when we are in 3,828 Hardee's stores, Carl's Jr. and Hardee's, where it's the, called the baby back rib burger, that is our rib on that burger, those same people motivated me to, to push myself to that level to be a part of that project. And, uh, and I kind of laugh now because I see those same qualities in my grandson. He's, he's two, but he's kind of a guy that, like, don't tell him he can't do anything. You know? Yeah. Cer- certainly don't try and hold him back. And you do not want to wrestle with Alexander. I mean, you know, I've got three granddaughters and one grandson. And it's really funny for me to see him growling, you know. (laughs) And I'll say to him, come on, man, like we'll go into a hotel, you know, and the two boys will go out and get the luggage. And uh, I'll just have my hand on, like, the cart. And I'll say, come on, help Papa. And he'll get down and push it in that. And I think to myself, this is what DNA is about. And, And I hope to make sure that I only exchange the good stuff with him. And, and that's where my uncle came into me. So that whole story gets carried forward by me being a man that hopefully my grandson will look at me and say, this is what my papa was like. And so that's that story and, and inventing this product and it being a family item and taking it literally worldwide. So, that goes back to when I said to you the story about why we're called Bubba's Q World Famous Barbecue and Catering. It's because yeah. I taught my family to have a world famous vision of what we could do. Let's don't limit ourselves to what can be done. Let's, you know, trust in God. Let's put the work in, and then let's 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 hand over the rest. And, and be the kind of people that are high in integrity like my uncle was. And so, I mean, I really do. I think there's a blueprint to success. If you work hard, that doesn't mean that something's going to come your way. That doesn't mean you're going to go to the NFL and have a 13-year career. But if you don't work hard, I can guarantee you, Mike, yeah. nothing's going to happen for you. All right. So the thing, your restaurant looked like was doing good. But what propelled you to try to get on the Shark Tank? What was that process to get on the show like? That was, I will not take any credit for that. That was my daughter, Brittany. Uh, It was about four years ago. And uh, I was having one of those moments that I I have occasionally, and I was like, hey, I've got to do something different, you know. And and my daughter and them were, hey, you know, this restaurant is supposed to be our uh, legacy and, and I was like, yeah, but, you know, I'm I'm itching to do some other things. And so my daughter was trying to get us on this show, this new show called Shark Tank, which I had never seen. So she went and she filled out the online application and it, you know, online registration, and it said, you know, it was a two-and-a-half-year wait. You know, and my daughter, she knows that I like a challenge, and she came back and she goes, Pop, they're saying that in uh, – 
150 words, we need to be able to define our product and why it should be on Shark Tank. And so she she sent me to the link, and, uh, of course, I answered it, and they said it was going to be a two-and-a-half-hour wait. And that that was in March, and in June we got a call. And, of course, I hung up on them because I thought it was one of my ex-teammates from NFL, <laughs> Sam Clancy, who, who who does those kinds of things, who wound up playing for the Indianapolis Colts, ironically. And, and so I thought it was a joke. I hung up, and the girl says, uh, no, look at the area code. You know, she goes, uh, Los Angeles is area code, you know, blah, blah, blah at the time. And I was like, oh, wow, how you doing? She goes, please don't hang up on me. And so uh, – <laughs> That's how that got started, but I, I don't take the credit. And I didn't mention this, but my daughter, Brittany, is my partner in the the boneless rib, which the patent is under the name the deboned the baby back ribs, rib steak. And my daughter's a 50-50 partner in it because it was her that motivated me to get back started in it. I had shelved it. I, I'd spent so much money on it and so much time. But I had the notes from the NFL days. Uh, like we kept notes on tackles and notes on what quarterbacks, the ones that licked your hands before they threw and had their left leg out further or lined up a little higher or a little lower or the back split more. Um, you know, I had all those notes for time, temperature, and textures. And uh, so she just kind of helped me to organize it. And uh, that's how we got to uh, the goal line. We, we crossed it, and we, we started to have what we would call, just like in the NFL, we'd have game plan. Just the two of us, we'd have, like, vision meetings, and we would talk about – she was just about a sophomore, junior in high school, and we would talk about what what could you do with, you know, this. And so, of course, in the restaurant, we would try out all these things, and that was our focus group. That was our test. And we just always had a world-famous vision. We just, no matter what was going on, particularly in the slow months, you know, barbecue in the Midwest in the winter, it's tough to sell because it gets dark at 5 and folks ain't coming back. If you drive home in a snowstorm, you're certainly not going back. I don't care how good that barbecue is. You're not going back out to eat dinner. And so we were always contended with that. And so that was when my daughter and I went pretty, we were, you know, we would put our heads together and we go, hey, you know what, when, when catering starts or when April gets here, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And we were, we've were, we always, you know, going back to this guy um, from the Flying Fish, uh, John Yokohama, uh, we would always re- revert back to that, that tape and how he would talk about, you know, people with small visions make small accomplishments, people with big visions – and and he had a saying, if you shoot for the moon and you fall short, you'd fall amongst the stars. And so we just, we, you know, we, we've always reminded each other of this when, when one or the other of us seemed like we're losing our edge. And uh, we just kind of picked each other up. And so we've, we've always had this. And, and I might say this to you, uh, Mike, I really – don't think we have scratched the surface of what can be done with this because you can't make a sandwich with a bone-in rib. You can't make appetizers. Sure, you can scrape the meat off, but what you're going to be left with, it won't be whole, if you get what I'm yeah. saying, literally. 
and uh, I, I get that. I, I you know, but but the question that I ask myself every morning I get up before I pray and I have my tea, I always ask myself with some of the large uh, research and development teams that some of these big companies have, I always say, God, why did you give this to us? I mean, and that's a literal question. And, 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 and when, I, when I ask myself questions, typically with the brain, when you ask it a question, it typically spits back out answers to you. And so yeah. every time I get these answers, you know, I write them down and we, and we talk about them and we, we, uh, we now have a partnership or a relationship. I like to call it a um, strategic alliance where we have a co-packer who's an expert at meat. And we have Damon John from Shark Tank who's, I mean, this guy, he's a marketing genius, and certainly now he knows the social media. And then I'm, I'm the salesperson because I'm the vision. My job is to make sure that everybody is staying focused on one of my favorite cliches, and that is I'd rather be a yeoman on a smooth sailing ship than to be the captain of a sunken ship. And yeah. so here we have, after so many opportunities to give up, we've had so many chances to just – nobody would have faulted me for saying, all right, man, a patent costs $16,000. Where are you going to get that from in a lump sum? Well, we did, you know, and now we also own something that a lot of people told me was impossible, and that is a patent to the process. Well, we own that as well, and that was just as expensive. So we've got about $35,000 worth, two of the most expensive pieces of paper you've ever seen in your life. But now, some 30-something years, 35 years later, it, it seems like it's more than well worth it that we're having conversations with the Walt Disney Company and Kroger and we're in Meyer and you can go to Bubba's Boneless Ridge.com and we're in the ShopRite and you can even get it at the Myers near you guys that are in Michigan, Kentucky, Ohio, Wisconsin. Um, we're headed to a food show on the West Coast. And, and I say this to you, Mike, just to say for people who grow impatient, you have to stay the course but you also have to have that world-famous vision, and you have to believe that when God gives you something and he blesses you with something, you can't be impatient. You have to trust him, and you have to go forward. Um, even when your body says, I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't do any more of these trade shows. I can't make this product anymore from 2 a.m. in the morning till 2, 2, 2 p.m. the next day. I just... I can't. Yes, you can. Because, you know, like so many people have heard from uh, Henry Ford, it's a matter of whether you think you can or you can't. You're probably right. And and we just have the world-famous vision. We've always believed that we can. And just, I mean, almost to the point of just being stupid. I can't think of a better word. We just, you know, we've always been that way as a family. And the more People told us that, you know, I've had people tell me that, that supposedly uh, cared about me. You know, that's a pipe dream, right? That doesn't even make any sense. You know, why would anybody want a bone? And, and so funny, a lot of those people uh, Facebook me, and some of them are family members, and I just smile. 
now, you know, and, and of well, because those are people that are basically afraid to take chances in their own life, and they don't want to see anybody else do it because if those people make it, it shows them how wrong they were about themselves. You are you hit it right on the head. That is that is exactly the truth. That is, I mean, you said it. Well, you obviously have had some experience with that kind of people, and and, and I think you and I we should be sharing this with um, people that listen because you know. A lot of people, they think that family and friends are there to support them when in all reality, your family and friends that tell you you can't be something, they could serve as a part of your advisory board. They could be those people that poke holes in what you're doing, and if you're focused on where you want to end up, that world-famous vision, then... When that person says to you, well, what about this? Well, then that's what a business plan is for. That, that's yeah. gonna, that person just gave you a piece of information because now you need to go back and solve that. You know, and, and we get that every day. That's called social media now, you know. Well, and you it's kind of like if you're a football coach, because I've seen all kinds of football coaches before. You've seen, especially at the high school level, if you, wanna, if you want your kid to do something and he questions why you're doing it and the coach gets mad, the thing I always thought was this. If I'm a coach and somebody, a player, questions me, if I can't answer that question, maybe I shouldn't be doing that anyways. And if you're afraid to answer the questions from the people you're supervising, then it's never going to work anyhow. You're so right, Mike. And and, and that was the thing that uh, I give so much credit to Floyd Peters. As I told you, I didn't have a dad in my life, and I told you that my dad a junior, my, he was that influence in me as a young man. Floyd Peters was that man in my life uh, early on in my professional career. Needless to say, I hated his guts because at the time I didn't understand why two and a half, three sacks for me and ten tackles wasn't enough on Monday after a Sunday game. But John Woodcock, who played nose guard, if he made five tackles, he had a heck of a game, you know. And and it was because he saw something in me. And so the way he coached me was he always felt like he never wanted me to be satisfied with who. He never wanted yeah. me to be satisfied with, with my, my own performance. So, you know, I think I've given you the whole nuts and bolts about what I am and, and the the rest of my life will be the best of my life. And I meet so many ball players that are in there. That, you know, I'm 60, and so many of them act like life is over. It's just starting. I, I just got to where I'm smart enough to know not to repeat some of the dumb things I've done. I mean, I'm a, yeah. I remember I told you I was a slow learner and a late bloomer. <laughs> yeah. So now it's all I'm kicking in now. <laughs> I'm just not to all right. Well, I know you're a busy man. Um, do you want to tell people where they can find your product? Maybe give them a website? Yeah. You can go to BubbaBonusRibs.com and you can get the bonus ribs and, of course, a whole menu of other things. You can go to Myers, ShopRite, Food Town. Um, you just go to our website and you go to our store locator and put your your zip code in. And it will tell you where the nearest Bubba's Q is near you. 
And I think you'll see why we're so passionate as a family about what we're doing. Uh, it's something that we truly, truly enjoy. We look forward to what we do. And uh, go out and try the baby back rib burger at the nearest Carl's Jr. or Hardee's. And I think you'll be amazed. I, I, I don't see it because our rib is on it. I think it's one of the best burgers I've ever had, and I'm grateful to have a partner like Carl's Jr. and Hardy to help us to achieve part of our world-famous vision. Well, but Al, I'll tell you, it was an absolute honor to have you on the show. I mean, when I first thought about getting you on the show, my thought was he was a hell of a football player, and I want to have him on the show. But when I started looking at it, you're so much more than that, and it is always a pleasure and an honor to speak to somebody who was a great athlete but did even more and affected even more people after he retired. Thank you so much, Mike. That, that means a whole lot to me, and, and that is worth more than just a yellow jacket and a ring because, you know, God brought us here to be an influence on our fellow man of all races, creeds, and color. And that's what I hope to be. That's what I hope to have my grandson have to say, uh, my, my children's children's children about Papa. Yeah, because as they say, you can't take the money with you, but you can leave behind no. the legacy that everybody remembers. Amen. Amen, brother. But, all right. Thanks a lot, Al. Um, I want to remind everybody, you can check out all of our shows on iHeartRadio, Google Music, um, iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher. Anytime you find or any place you find sports podcasts, you'll find The Grueling Truth. Make sure you check out our sponsors, Replenishing Care Technologies and Gridiron and Mo. Um, both are great companies. Check out their websites. Um, so for Al Bubba Baker, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been listening to The Grueling Truth 